Hey, Heartbreakers, as you can tell from the title, this is going to be a conversation centered around some sensitive topics. So be sure to check content mornings before you choose to listen. We're also going to be referencing the main episode from this week. So if you haven't given it a listen yet, be sure to do so before you press play. Welcome back to another breakdown bonus episode. I am here with licensed clinical social worker, Amethyst St. Thomas, for a really important conversation about domestic violence, specifically with this episode, verbal abuse. And I'm so happy you're here to be able to chat about this with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Let's just talk about our general reaction to the episode, because I think me and you are very much on the same page where it's like that was kind of hard to listen to. Yeah, I mean, I had to pause it a couple of times. I was watching it with a friend um, and or listening to it with a friend. And I was like, OK, whoa, pause for a second. Like we need to kind of have this conversation and this narrative because it was intense. I mean, as somebody who is having these conversations on a weekly basis with clients, what was something that really particularly stuck out to you that was like, ooh, that really hit home or ooh, that sounds like something a lot of my clients experience? I think for me, it's like the red flags. There's a culture that normalizes certain language and normalizes certain conversations in in intimate relationships that shouldn't be. And just having to like reframe that conversation a lot in my work. When I heard it in in the podcast, I was like, whoa, okay. (laughs) There's more work to be done. Yeah. It's like we have to define the difference between what's a red flag. Maybe he's holding up a dead fish in his profile. Like, okay, red flag there. But like, what is a literal stop sign where we should turn around and maybe reconsider the path that we're going on in this relationship. The reason why I wanted to put out this story so badly is that she sounds like a lot of the people I talk to where they kind of explain away some of these stop signs where maybe it's it's an opportunity to get out of the relationship rather than explain away. Mm-hmm. Something that she kept bringing up was the fact that, oh, well, he's just a hothead. He just has a really bad temper yeah. and that's just who he is. Whereas maybe who he is needs some help. Maybe this hothead needs to get into, into some therapy. But I, I think it's really good for us to establish a foundation of what we're talking about. So let's just kind of go over some of the basics of some of the language that we're going to be bringing up a lot in this episode. Can you just give me a broad definition of what's considered verbal abuse? Verbal abuse is a type of um, psychological mental abuse, right? It involves the use of oral, gestured, and written language directed towards a person. Verbal abuse can be can include active harassing someone, labeling someone, insulting someone, scolding someone, rebuking, excessive yelling. I love that you mentioned, oh, he's just a hothead, right? Like, not really. (laughs) Not really. And, you know, being able to readily identify those things is important, right? So with verbal abuse, or in this case, sometimes emotional abuse, right? The name calling, as I mentioned, the insulting, the constantly criticizing you as a person, jealous or possessive behavior, isolating your family and friends or people in your life, monitoring your activity with or without your knowledge, including demanding to know where you go, who you're with and how you spend your time. I remember someone told me once, oh yeah, I I checked my phone one day and I realized that my boyfriend turned my location on and he can see my location. And I was like, okay. And they're like, yeah, but I didn't know. And I was like, didn't know that? Like red flag. So definitely like that monitoring, attempting to control just you as a person. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? So attempting to control what you wear, your clothes, your makeup, your hairstyles, humiliating you in like large groups of friends. That hothead category, it's a it's an excuse. These behaviors are not acceptable. I love that you brought up control because I think that's really what you could boil down a lot of his behaviors to. And right. I'm curious from a mental health standpoint, do you see wanting control to be a pretty common theme in these types of abusive relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in these type of relationships, there's usually a control dynamic, right? The dynamic is unhealthy to start. You often see the aggressive 
aggressor in one in one situation has a partner who may be passive. You don't normally see two aggressive people together. I mean, it, it, it happens, but in, in most of these instances, not often. So you have one aggressive person, one passive person. You'll have a, a person wanting to seek control, maybe because they don't have control in another dynamic in their life, right? So you hear the stories about, oh, this person is doesn't have control at work. And so they exert this dominance and this level of control at home. Again, this is not an excuse. It doesn't make it healthy any, in any fashion, but those are common um, dynamics, common situations. A lot of the instances where I was listening to this episode and thinking like, ooh, that sounds like something I would not want to experience. A lot of these heated arguments, a lot of these hothead moments, I think are pretty easy to explain away, especially when you're young. This was a really young relationship. And so what would you say defines the difference between, you know, we're just like really going at it. We're just kind of like having a really heated exchange versus like something that's really unhealthy. There's a fine line sometimes. I think in this time, in this generation, especially with our youth, we recognize the impact and the effects of trauma. If there's a heated argument, you know, there's always this level of empathy where someone's saying, you know, maybe there's something deeper going on. And therefore, you know, this isn't intentional. This isn't from a place of malice. And that's where you have to really take a hard look at what's really happening. And so how do you feel after a conversation, right? You know, you can have a heated argument, right? You can have a heated discussion, but at the end of that, how are you feeling? How are you feeling at the end? Do you feel low? Do you feel defeated? Do you feel manipulated? Do you feel, you know, like you weren't even heard in that particular conversation, dynamic argument, what have you? Do you feel small? Do you feel like the person may have been gaslighting you? You know, do you feel unsafe? That's a big one. I think a lot of times we don't really ask ourselves, do we feel safe in this space? And not just safe physically, but safe mentally. Do you feel safe enough to express yourself? Um, And a lot of times that isn't really the case, right? Like I don't feel safe enough to say what I want to say without argument stirring. And in any relationship, you should be able to say whatever it is that crosses your mind. If it's, I don't like this today, or I don't, you know, I'm not interested in this today or whatever, you should be able to verbalize those things and feel safe enough to say things. If you feel at any point in time, like, oh, I'm not going to tell him that because he's going to lose it. Like that's a red flag. That's a sign that hmm, maybe you shouldn't be with someone that you can't say, hey, I'm going out with the girls tonight. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like when you're on the outside, like, of course, like we can hear some of the things that are going on in this relationship and be like, oh, I wouldn't put up with that. When you're in it, it's so much harder to see just how bad things are getting. What are some of the reasons that people decide to stay in these unhealthy environments? So there's lots of reasons. This is a fairly younger couple, but if we're thinking about the length of the relationship, there could be, and more than likely there was a point in time where there wasn't this verbal abuse going on. There was a hope. We hold on to a level of hope that the relationship will go back to that peaceful space. The time where things were not this crazy. Oftentimes holding on to that hope can be detrimental for yourself. There's often other factors, right? Do you live together? Do you, you know, do you have children together? Do you have other things tying you to this relationship outside of just this is your partner? But in most instances, there is this, oh, well, they're not always like that. Oh, you're only just see. this is just a one-time thing. Uh, no girl, you called me about four or five times about this. This is not just a one-time thing. <laughs> you know, oftentimes there's love. We tend to negate in certain conversations, particularly about DV, that there is a level of love in, in that space, in that relationship. If you're in that relationship, good chance you probably love or care about this person a lot. Outside of the DV and what's going on, right? It's out of that verbal, emotional, physical, whatever kind of abuse going on. You probably care about this person. And to say, peace, I'm out the door is not easy. You know, if we, if we took out that particular 
other part and we just said, hey, you should break up with this person. You'd be like, what? Why? Why would I do that? I love and care about them. Even if we say, hey, this isn't healthy, doesn't make the love evaporate. It doesn't make the, the ca- you caring about this person disappear. You don't just stop caring about them overnight. And so that can be really hard. And you have to make the choice between are you going to let go like the little bit of happiness you feel like you're clinging on to versus what is often a really scary alternative, especially in this instance where she mentioned feeling really isolated. It kind of sounds like that's a common theme where abusers try to get their victim, so to speak, isolated from their friends and family. As somebody who's maybe having to decide between those two realities, like how do how could you maybe encourage somebody to, you know, have to choose what is in their head, probably the harder alternative? Oh, yeah, for sure. One of the things that as someone who serves as a support for individuals and in my space, I'm often or in my in my role, I'm often serving as a support for others. I always say I am not going to make this decision for you and I'm not going to tell you what to do. But what I will do is come up with what we call a, a safety plan. And so should you decide that you want to make this decision, let's come up with a plan. Let's come up with an exit plan. Essentially, it's what it is. A safety plan is an exit plan. How do we get you out of here in a quick of a moment, right? You made the decision on a Tuesday. Everyone's at work. Who are you calling? Tuesday at 2 p.m. You're like, I can't call anyone. But what is your exit plan? What is your safety plan? To your point about being isolated, a lot of times that is a, a specific thing that abusers do. Abusers tend to manipulate and, and isolate you from your friends and family, particularly because if you have support, you're harder to control. And so uh, if you don't have anyone that you can call, right? No one's saying, hey, girl, that don't sound right. Or hey, 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 bro, that doesn't sound good. The chances are you're going to be internalizing everything that's happening on your own. You're going to be processing everything that you have that happens on your own. And you probably won't have a lot of space for self-reflection to really decide how you feel about something because your partner's right there mm. in your decision and thinking. The safety plan is one of the biggest things that you can have with someone that you may know is in this situation. And I encourage people not, I'm, I'm, I'm a clinician. And so it's something I, I implement often. I've done it with friends, <laughs> friends, like not my clients, not people that I'm working with at any space or, or at, at place of employment. I'm a friend of mine. If they're going through this, let's talk about your exit plan. Whenever you're ready, whenever you're ready, whatever you want to do, when you want to do it, this is the plan. So having, even if it's one place that you can go to feel safe. Your friends are so fortunate to have you, someone who's an expert in this area in their life to help them get out of that. But I can imagine if somebody is still having friendships, if they, if they are lucky enough to not have gotten totally isolated, if they have a friend and that friend is maybe listening to this episode and they're like, Hey, there's something going on with my pal's relationship, but I don't really know how to start that conversation without coming off as like, Hey, I think you should dump this dude or girl or whoever. How can people in in their lives bring this up without coming off as like too overbearing? That's an excellent question. And I think it's something that is so common. Folks are always in the space of, I don't want to get involved. And for a number of reasons, because there's a level of fear. If I say something to you and you break up with them and then you might get back with them. And, And then it's like, Oh, well, I failed. Or you didn't listen to me as a friend. You didn't really want my help, right? There's a level of fear there. Um, There's also, you know, a level of fear where you could be isolated from them some more. You tell them to break up and then they go tell their partner. And now the partner's like, you can't hang out with them. They're they're getting in our relationship. Being able to be there for your friend. I've learned not just in my professional career, but in my personal life, that the best way you can be there for someone is to understand that you can't make the decision for them, that you have to allow them to make the decision. Whenever they're ready, you have to keep that door open. If you know that it's there, if you see it, if you have signs of it, if you want to open that conversation, if if you have that relationship where you can say something, I would just 
ask, do you feel safe? Back to that safe word, right? Like, do you feel safe in this relationship? Like, do you feel things are okay? Like, how are you feeling? And most times just asking that, that one, with that one word, the safe word, it opens up a can of worms, right? Because they may say, well, what do you mean safe, right? And you can go into that. Well, do you feel safe? Like physically, do you feel safe enough to have conversations with him? And and if not, they may just outright say no. And that, and that's another, another conversation you can have. But the biggest thing I would tell anyone listening today, if you want to be there for someone is don't close that door, no matter what, even if that friend is pushing you far, far away for whatever reason, you keep that door open. If they call you at 2 a.m. and they're saying, I'm ready now, get me out of here. You want to be able to pick up and you want to be able to say, okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Like, do I need to hide the body somewhere? Like, I got to right. oh, let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I want to revisit what you were talking about a couple of questions ago, the safety plan. So like, let's say you do get that call and someone's like, I'm ready to go. What are some general, general ideas for a safety plan to help get your friend out? Oh, for sure. Let me define a safety plan. A safety plan is a personalized practical plan to improve safety while you're experiencing abuse, abuse of any kind, right? Preparing to leave an abusive situation or a plan after you decided to leave already, right? So as you're getting into that space, you know, maybe it's not even a thought. Maybe you're like, leave. I can't do that because maybe there's children involved. And so it could be prepare or it could be a plan that you that you've made the decision. OK, now we need a plan like me and my kids are at the bus stop. Like, what do I do now? Right. So uh, that's essentially what a safety plan is. I always start off with and having in the safety plan, the hotline, like having the abuse hotline on the safety plan. Like that's number one, mainly because in my opinion, a lot of times in the spare of the moment when you've made the decision, you might not be able to call every and every one. Right. You may not have if you I always say let's come up with this, three people that we know you can call in this particular instance. Maybe those three people are unavailable for whatever reason. Right. And so firstly, having people that you can call, people that you know who are available. So the abuse hotline 1-800-799-SAFE. They have a, a chat line, I believe, as well. Like you can chat with them 24-7. So being able to have that on there. Also being able to maybe if you want to put aside some money, if you're in a relationship and there's some financial ties. Right. So do you have an account that you can put a couple dollars in? every so often, right? Is there, is, is that okay? Do you have a place you can go? Do you have a person that you can bring all your stuff? What are your valuables? Identifying what are your valuables? Maybe you have your passport, your birth certificate and ID and a credit card just in one place. So just in the car somewhere, but identifying what those places, what those places are and also assessing what is the risk of danger? You want to have a hard conversation about should you decide to leave? What is the risk here, right? What will happen if I make this decision? It could, you know, there, there could be implications and that's what the safety plan is all about. You know, maybe that person may want to harm you if you decide to leave. And so, you know, having a place that they don't know about, having an address they don't know about, having a, a resource that they're not familiar with. So it could be the shelter. It could be your two cousins away that you haven't spoken to and whatever, but having a place and a person that you trust that knows about the situation that can definitely guide you or provide you a level of safety. Actually leaving probably feels like it is and is probably one of the most difficult parts of having to exit this relationship. But I can imagine there's a lot afterwards that you have to deal with emotionally. What are some of the most difficult things that your clients are working through when they've decided to leave an abusive relationship? What are they trying to heal? There's guilt. We can get into survivor's guilt, just guilt in itself, because kind of going back to when you were you were saying excuse away, there's still love and care for that person. We've decided to leave for ourselves, but there's still love and care for that person. That when I say guilt, I mean... I'm concerned about if they're okay. I'm con- I'm worried.
worried about them. And that's normal. It's normal to to care about, about that person, right? It, it's not a crime to feel like I'm worried about them or I hope they're all right. You know, you're human. A lot of times it's depending on the dynamic, of course, it could be that the feeling of having to pick yourself back up from nothing. If you were living with this person and I don't know, they're paying the bills or whatever. And now you're in a place where you don't have a home. You don't have money. You don't have, you know, hopefully you have, you had some kind of income coming in, but if you don't, it's kind of putting those building blocks together. Your sense of security is gone. And then it's also rebuilding your sense of safety. I keep coming back to that word safety, but a lot of time rebuilding what safe means. You know, you've, when you're in a, a situation or, or a, a space that's abusive, you don't often recognize that you're unsafe until, until you kind of at that place where you're ready to go. And then you think that, okay, now that I'm physically safe, I'm emotionally safe. And that's not always true. Your guard is still up. You're sensitive to the touch. You're sensitive to anything. Your trigger senses are aware, are up, or they're heightened. And so you want to be sort of rebuilding yourself. And that often doesn't feel the best to have to be transparent and open that I don't feel safe emotionally, not just physically, but emotionally. My feelings, my thoughts, they're not safe. And even if I'm with my best friend, even if I'm with my cousin or my family, we're hesitant to speak. Those behaviors don't just stop because the person who we're involved with is no longer in the picture. Is there anything we haven't covered? I feel like we've kind of went through the broad spectrum of everything that happened in the story. And I feel like I personally learned so much and I know everyone listening is feeling the same. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you really feel like you want people to know before we kind of wrap things up? It's October. You know, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. All I would, I guess I would say is that this conversation needs to continue. You need to have this conversation all the time. It can be scary to, I think what we were, you were asking about, what can you do if you sense it, right? It can be scary to identify it if you see it in someone else, you know, even if you're not sure if it's happening with you. But I think the most important thing is that you seek a support. I can't stress enough how important it is to have a support system. I ask that question to almost everybody I work with. I say, what's your support system like? And, and I ask that specifically because having a support in anything that we do gives us the strength to get through, it gives us the strength to get to the next thing. Lean on your support, whatever it is. And if you're a person who doesn't feel like you have a strong support system, make that a goal to work on building your support system. And then I would also say, check on your friends. We live in a very isolated time now, even with the, the COVID-19 pandemic dying down. During the pandemic, domestic violence shot through the roof. And so we, we've we kind of gotten accustomed to, I don't need to see you to have this relationship or develop this. Friend. We can go on FaceTime together. Or we could, I see you on Instagram or Twitter all day. I don't, I know you're okay. That's not true. <laughs> I make it a point with my friends to set up FaceTime dates. I want to see your face. <laughs> and then if, we're, if we have the ability to be in the same city together, I want to physically see you. You know, let's, let's hang out. Let's go to the movie. Let's go, let's go do something together. Check on your friends because now in this isolated world, you know, we just, you just never know what's going on, especially at home. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing and for answering all my burning questions about this incredibly important topic. I mean, of course it's important in October, but it's something that, like you said, I think we should be talking about way, way more. Where can my audience find you after this if they want to learn more from Amethyst? Thank you so much for having me. This was such a great conversation and so necessary. I am the founder of the private practice called Inclusive Therapy Club. If anyone is listening and interested, you can find more information about me and about my practice at www.inclusivetherapyclub.com. We're also on Instagram at inclusivetherapyclub.com as well. I think we're on like every social media, honestly. Yeah, girl. <laughs> Twitter, we got Twitter, we got Facebook, we got LinkedIn. Um, just type in Inclusive Therapy Club. You'll find us again. 
and and thank you so much for having me and having this conversation. It's so important.